This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Albert Fish. Now, most of you will immediately know what this means, and those of you who don't will need to listen to my next words carefully. This man was seriously disturbed, and what he did was, there are no words that can sum up his crimes neatly and in a politically correct way. This episode will be dark, very, very dark. We will discuss things that nearly all of polite society would like to pretend doesn't happen. This will be graphic. Graphic. Parts of it will be very hard to listen to. I will do my upper best to clean it up for, quote, mass consumption, but in order to give you the full story, there will be moments that will make you uncomfortable, and that's putting it lightly. So if you have to turn this off, I completely understand, but it just doesn't do the story, nor his precious victims, any justice to glaze over what he did. So I strongly urge you to continue listening with caution. Don't say I didn't warn you. Now, are you still with me? Excellent. I admire that. Buckle in, folks. Hamilton Fish was born on May 19, 1870, making him a Taurus in Washington, D.C. Now, as we always do, let's see what was going on in the world at that time. The 1870s were a time of celebration. The nation was holding its 100th birthday, which interestingly was being held not long after the Civil War. The United States would now experience huge industrial progress, which was noticed worldwide. No longer was the U.S. looked at by other great countries as a lower group of colonies. It was on its way to being one of the biggest global powers. In 1870, the Standard Oil Company was incorporated by John D. Rockefeller. The first black congressman, Republican Senator Hiram Rhodes Revels, was sworn into office. 
Also, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was signed, giving voting rights to black Americans, and that there would no longer be a ban on voting rights based on race. The population of the United States then was about 38,558,371, according to a census from then, which was a 22.6% increase from the 1860 census. The Civil War had slowed the increase compared to other time periods. And speaking of the Civil War, the last Confederate state, Georgia, was readmitted into the Union, effectively putting to rest the Confederated States of America. The Weather Bureau, which is now known as the National Weather Service, made its first forecast. The year after, the Great Fire of Chicago started, which went on to burn 1.2 million acres of land, destroyed over 17,000 homes and buildings, and killed 250 people and left 90,000 homeless. So, typical weekly wages for, say, a blacksmith were about $18.74. A carpenter made $24.60 a week, and a general laborer made roughly $6 a week. As for the cost of living around 1870, a gallon of molasses or a pound of butter was 25 cents. A pound of sugar, 7 cents. A pound of rice was 5 cents and oranges were 20 cents a pound. If you owned a farm, a good workhorse was $150 unless you wanted a good saddle horse, then it would cost you 200. A cow was $26 and the bull was 90 and a steer to feed out for a short amount of time before slaughter was around $23. Land was about $5 an acre, and a house consisting of four rooms, which was nice for those times, cost about $700. Everyday clothes were around $1 to $2 per article of clothing, but if you wanted to dress up, it would be closer to $2.50 to $3 per article. Now, if you wanted to get married, a gold wedding band was $2. And as far as transportation, people were still mostly getting around by horse and buggy. And if you wanted a plain buggy with no top, it would cost you nearly $30. But if you could afford it and wanted one with a cover to help protect you from the rain, it was closer to $50. So that's quite a difference compared to today. So getting into Albert's childhood, Albert's parents were Randall and Ellen Fish. He was the youngest out of four children. His siblings were Walter, Annie, and Edwin. Albert began calling himself Albert instead of Hamilton for two reasons. One, it was the name of a deceased sibling as well as a distant relative who had been in politics. And two, his nickname was Ham and Eggs, and he was tired of being teased. His father, Randall, was born in 1795, meaning he was 75 years old when Albert was born. There's just not a lot of information about Randall, but what we do know was that he was a native of Maine, and he had been the sheriff of three counties up there at some point in his youth. 
It was noted that he had invented a few very useful things, but what those were, I was not able to find. He was a member of the Masonic fraternity, being a 32nd degree Mason. So you conspiracy guys love that. It was also noted that at some point he was considered pretty wealthy as he was the director of a bank in New York City and was the president of gold mining and lumber companies in Virginia. Randall went from all of that to being a riverboat captain sailing from Washington, D.C. to Marshall Hall, Virginia and back. But sometime after Albert was born, he switched careers and became a fertilizer manufacturer. He died suddenly from a heart attack at 80 years old, and he is buried in the Grand Lodge grounds of the Congressional Cemetery. Now, Albert's mother, Ellen Howell, was born in 1838 in Ireland, but her family immigrated to the United States. I could not find anything else about Ellen's life before Albert other than she was 32 years old when she had him and he was her youngest child. Now if you do the math, that means that Ellen married a man who was 43 years older than herself. Albert was born into a well-respected lineage, but his extended family were known to have serious mental health issues. In two generations, seven people, not counting Albert, suffered from psychosis or were severely psychopathic personalities. One of Randall's brothers, this is Albert's father, one of Randall's brothers suffered from what they then called, quote, religious psychosis and later died in a state hospital. One of Randall's sisters, though we don't know exactly what she had, was just described as completely crazy. It was also said that Ellen lived with auditory as well as visual hallucinations. That's Albert's mother. One of Albert's brothers died in a state hospital. He had another brother that died from hydrocephalus or excess cerebrospinal fluid on the brain. Another brother was a chronic alcoholic and his sister also had some mental illness. Needless to say, it will come as no surprise that Albert also lived with mental illness. In 1875, when Albert was five years old, his father died and left the family destitute. Ellen was forced to put her children into orphanages in order to be able to work and save up enough money to take care of all of them. The orphanage that Albert was put into was called St. John's Orphanage in Washington, D.C. It was also called the Children's Home. Few of the children at St. John's were actually orphans. Most were from a family of divorce and had at least one living parent. The children were divided into four groups. Little girls, big girls, little boys, and big boys. Then... The older children were subgrouped into insects, juniors, and seniors. Each group had a governess to watch over them. There were also four nuns who basically ran the place. There are articles and blogs written about this place, and they certainly paint a decent picture. But Albert Fish's experience did not mirror any of that. Now, while his basic needs were met... 
He stated that he was very unhappy having to be there and attempted to run away frequently. He was a nervous and fidgety child. The discipline used against the children was abusive and Albert said he was frequently whipped and beat. But at some point in his boyhood, he realized to his surprise that he rather liked the physical pain from the whippings and the beatings. He would also sneak around to watch the older boys get beat, feeling sexually aroused by the sight before he was even nine years old. He later stated that he also watched a few of the other boys perform sexual acts with each other. Now, when Albert was nine years old, his mother got a decent paying government job and she was able to get her children back. The boy that she picked up from that children's home was no longer the innocent boy that she had left there. Albert was a bedwetter until he was 11 years old. When Albert was just 12, he began a homosexual relationship with another boy. He and the boy began whipping each other much to their pleasure. One of them had fashioned a paddle with nails and would hit the other boy with it. One of them had fashioned a paddle with nails and would hit the other with it. This boy would also go on to introduce young Albert into such things as, uh, well, let's just call it consuming the two kinds of human waste. The relationship with that boy was not long lived and on the weekends when Albert wasn't in school, he would go to the public baths and watch boys of all ages undress for hours on end. Then Albert graduated from public school at the age of 15. So that's Albert's childhood. And quite frankly, I just don't even know where to begin. Severe mental illness ran, in my opinion, quite rampantly through his family and DNA. It does not surprise me whatsoever that he had a genetic predisposition to mental illness. Losing his father at such a young age and then being placed in an orphanage didn't help, although I understand that his mother couldn't help it. Orphans and other vulnerable children living in institutionalized facilities are more likely to display behavioral and emotional problems such as conduct disorder, which is a repetitive and persistent pattern of behavior in which the basic rights of others or major age appropriate norms are violated. So in other words, social rules are not followed. Very young children put into orphanages are often clingy, desperate for attention, and they are willing to do anything for that attention. If that means acting out in negative or potentially violent ways, and that gets them the attention they want, then they'll do it. They also have problems with trust. So then you take a child like Albert, born with a genetic propensity towards mental illness, having watched his mother hallucinate and his brother be admitted to a state mental hospital, then stick him in an orphanage where negative behaviors typically come out, and then you sprinkle in nuns who strip the children naked, beat and whip them while forcing the other children to watch. Well, you have a recipe for disaster. Albert started becoming sexually aroused while watching the other young boys get beat. Nowhere in his childhood can I see that he ever even had a shred of a hope for normalcy.
So in 1890, when Albert was just 20 years old, he moved up to New York City. He was able to find work as a painter and interior decorator, but he also stated he worked as a prostitute. Both afforded him the ability to lure young, unattended boys down into basements where he would then rape them. He mostly attacked young black boys because, unfortunately, during this time, the police would most likely not investigate the complaint, which is just terrible. Albert also began visiting brothels where he would pay someone to whip and beat him. By the time Albert was 28 years old, his mother became increasingly concerned that he had not ever found a girlfriend, settled down, and got married. So, she found him a suitable 19-year-old young lady named Anna Mary Hoffman and arranged for them to get married. He continued to be a house painter and a decorator, and he also continued to molest little boys, mostly under the age of six, and he also continued to have male lovers. One such lover took him to a wax museum where Albert saw a bisected penis and he became aroused. From then on, he was completely fascinated by the idea of castration. Albert began a sadomasochistic love affair with a mentally handicapped man named Thomas Keaton. Once, he decided to try to castrate the man while he was tied up, so he took Thomas out to an old farmhouse. He tied him up and proceeded to torture him for two weeks. Then, after cutting half of this man's penis off, Albert later stated, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave, unquote. He then cleaned and dressed the wound, left a $10 bill for Thomas, and left. After this, he began going to the brothels much more frequently to be whipped and beaten, and in 1903, he was actually arrested for embezzlement and was imprisoned in Sing Sing. While there, he had many affairs with other inmates. Now, during these years, he and his wife, Anna, had managed to have six children, Albert Jr., Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry Fish. He often left the house for long periods of time, leaving her alone to tend the children. She knew his sexual appetites were odd, though she never could have known just how odd they were. Now, while Albert was at work, Anna started having an affair with a man who had been staying with them, a handyman named John. She ran away with John, leaving Albert as a single father to the children. Now, two weeks later, she returned, claiming that John had been beating her, and she begged Albert to allow her to come back. So he did, but she snuck John back in the house and had him hidden in the basement, and when Albert discovered this, he ordered them both out of the house. Then, while Albert was gone, Anna took nearly everything the family had owned and sold it. Now, by all accounts, he was a good and loving father. He worked long hours to make enough money to provide for his children, which absolutely amazes me. His own children were safe, but no other child was. But anyway, at the same time, his wife abandoning the family had pushed him over the edge. He later stated that he began having auditory hallucinations. 
Once, he rolled himself up into a carpet, saying that he had done so after receiving instructions from John the Apostle. Albert also began to self-harm. This is an indication he was suffering from religious mania. Another time, he climbed a hill, he stood at the top, and he began screaming at the moon over and over that he was Christ. He took sewing needles and pushed them into the skin on and around his groin and lower abdomen. He would paddle himself with a paddle embedded with nails. Albert also began taking wads of wool that he had soaked in lighter fluid. He inserted them into his bottom and then lit it on fire. And while he never abused his own children physically or sexually, he did have them, as well as their friends, whip him with that paddle. On occasion, his perversions, sexual acts, murder, and mutilation of children would garnish enough attention that he would be forced to move, and move he did, a lot. He moved to the other side of town or the other side of the state, and sometimes he'd move to other states. He once claimed that he had lived as far west as Montana, and also stated he had sired children in each state that he had briefly lived in, although there's no proof of this. Albert also began writing letters to women he'd find in magazines looking for husbands. Back then, there were matrimonial agencies that would try to help women find husbands because women didn't want to be known as old maids. And it was not considered terribly odd to make these advertisements. And the letters that Albert wrote to these women were vile to say the least. He didn't write of daydreaming about meeting the woman and them falling hopelessly in love. Instead, he wrote to them to ask them if they'd be interested in doing sadomasochistic acts along with him. He wanted the women to whip little boys alongside him. On occasion, he would write a decent enough letter to get a response, and he used many aliases such as Frank Howard, John Pell, and Robert Hayden. So one woman stated that she got a letter back and was comfortable enough to allow him to come see her at her home. She stated, quote, He looked like an innocent man, but he had a rope or clothesline in a piece of wrapping paper, and he said he wanted to be beaten with it. When he departed, he left the rope, unquote. What she did was order him to leave and complain to the agency, who basically just blew her off. So as the years went by, he became fascinated with cannibalism. Albert, when preparing meals for himself and his children, began eating the meat raw and even tried serving this raw meat to his own children. And his religious mania continued to get worse. Albert became obsessed with purging himself of all sins and atoning through physical suffering and self-torture, part of which was shoving needles under his fingernails. He would on occasion say he was God, and he felt he was supposed to sacrifice one of his own sons. He had visions of seeing Jesus standing before him, speaking in a mumble that Albert couldn't make out. He professed to be visited by angels and them saying words to him like, Stripes, rewardeth, and delighteth. 
he interpreted this as, quote, Stripes means to lash them, you know. I could hear words spoken, and of course a great deal I have read. I could put the words together and see what they meant. Then I made up the rest from what I read, unquote. His speech also became quite disconnected, starting one sentence with a thought and ending the sentence with something completely unrelated. He felt the only relief was through murdering children. He tied them up and beat them, and if there was no issue with being caught, he didn't even bother to gag them because he loved to hear them scream. He thought that the story of Abraham offering his own son to God was what he was supposed to do, to sacrifice children to God, and that would erase all of his sin and abominations in the sight of God. His hallucinations were sometimes visual, and he would think that he saw bodies being tortured and burned as if he were standing in hell. According to the book, Albert Fish in His Own Words by John Borowski, these episodes usually didn't last very long, anywhere from a few minutes to perhaps just over a day. During his delusions, he would be completely torn. Part of him craved the sexual depravity. The other part would feel some regret for his actions. He would exist simultaneously between horror and rapture, ecstasy and confusion. In 1924, when Albert was 54 years old, his children were grown or nearly so. This gave him more time to wander where once he had made his way to Staten Island and onto a rhubarb farm where he found eight-year-old Beatrice playing alone. Just as she was about to leave with him, her mother noticed the two and she chased Albert away. Albert was reading the Sunday classifieds in the newspaper on May 25, 1928, where he saw an advertisement stating, quote, young man, 18, Wishes position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. Unquote. Instantly intrigued, Albert began to fantasize about getting Edward, tying him up, mutilating him, and leaving him to bleed out. Three days later, 58 year old Albert made his way to Manhattan and visited the family stating his name was Frank Howard and that he had a farm in Farmingdale, New York. Albert told the family that he had five children, five farmhands, and a cook, and between them all, they had built up a successful farm. He boasted that he had several hundred chickens and six dairy cows, but unfortunately one of his farmhands was leaving and he needed someone to replace him. What did not go unnoticed was that Edward was a lean but muscular, strong young man, and Albert feared he might not be able to overpower him, but he promised to hire him, and he said he'd pay him $15 a week, which was an excellent wage back then. The family was so excited, they asked Albert to stay for lunch, to which he accepted. Edward's parents thought Albert was a kind and polite older gentleman, and it was obvious to them how much he loved his, quote, farm. 
So Albert promised to hire Edward and then he went back home. He was contemplating how he was going to overpower Edward. And Edward was excited for this opportunity. He wanted to be out in the country, away from the city where it was crowded and dirty and the air smelled of poverty. He wanted to get out into the country where there was fresh air and plenty of hard work for a strapping young man as himself. Albert then returned a few days later, only this time he met one of Edward's siblings, 10-year-old Grace Bud, as she entered the room humming a song, innocently. She was a beautiful young girl with dark eyes and dark hair and perfect porcelain pale skin. In that instant, Albert wanted her. So he told their parents that he had to go to his niece's birthday party, said he would be happy to take little Grace along with him and promised to have her home before 9 p.m. Grace's mother asked where his niece lived and he gave her a random address. Grace's mother felt very hesitant and then Albert told her that he knew the family struggled and that it would be nice for Grace to be able to go out and go to a little girl's party for a change. So although she was a little hesitant, she did decide to let Grace go. She helped Grace put on her coat and a nice hat, followed Albert and Grace to the door and watched them walk away down the street. That would be the last time they would see their daughter. The next morning, Edward went to the police station to report his little sister missing on June 3, 1928. There was no word for a year and a half until the superintendent of the Buds building was arrested as a suspect, but he was later found not guilty. Now get this, guys. Six years later... The Bud family received a letter from Albert Fish. The mother wasn't able to read, so she gave the letter to one of her sons to read to her. Now, I'm getting ready to read this letter to you, grammatical errors and all. It is very graphic. It is very disturbing. There are no words that I can pluck from the air to adequately prepare you for what Albert said. This is the best way that I know how to warn you. So here we go. My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or a girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or a girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. 
John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. He took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, and burned everything they had on. Several times a day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester that I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all of my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked, how she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not... I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. Unquote. Ugh. Reading that just turned my stomach. Can you even imagine getting a letter like that? Having to read those words about your own young child or sibling? So, the letter was taken to the police, where they noticed the envelope had a small symbol on it with letters that meant... New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. The police interviewed a janitor there who said he had taken some stationery home with him once to an old rooming house at 200 East 52nd Street, but he had left them there when he moved out. The police went to that address and spoke with the landlady who told them that Albert Fish had been a resident until just a few days ago and that his grown son had sent Albert some money, asking her to hold it for him until his father could come and get it. So the police waited. When Albert showed up to collect his money, the police took him down to the station for questioning. At first, Albert whipped out a razor, but of course the police were able to detain him easily enough. I mean, he was an aging man. 
During questioning, Albert Fish confessed to murdering young Grace. He was arrested and his trial began on March 11, 1935. Albert pled not guilty by reason of insanity, stating that he heard the voice of God telling him to kill children. The doctors that had evaluated Albert stated he had many sexual fetishes, such as sadism, masochism, exhibitionism, voyeurism, cannibalism, pedophilia, and many, many more. One of his doctors described him as a, quote, psychiatric phenomenon, the very first of his kind. Fish described his religious mania and believing that sacrificing children was washing him clean of all of his past sins, that the cannibalism was like uh, communion to him. They x-rayed his pelvis, not truly believing that he had stuck needles into his lower abdomen and groin, but they proved that he had, in fact, done so. The photographs of those x-rays are online if you're curious. Albert Fish was given the death penalty, to which he said, quote, What a thrill that will be if I have to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried, unquote. He was executed in the electric chair on January 16, 1936, at 66 years old. His last words were, quote, I don't even know why I'm here. Unquote. Fish either confessed or was implicated in the molestation of over 400 children, the torture and disfigurement of approximately 100 victims, and the murder of at least 15 children over a 20-year period. His early childhood experiences of torture, ridicule, and then later his downward spiral into psychosis can offer some sort of explanation as to why he was so ugh, disgusting. Now, I believe in his case, it was nature and nurture that drove him to kill. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name as this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also please consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info. And I am, by the way, never going to touch Albert Fish ever again. Ugh. So thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.